You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. I want to pray for us. I want to pray over all those things, and then then I'm going to preach. So let's do that. Father God, uh, we just come before you this morning, Father, as we uh, get ready to open your word once again together, as we... You ready to look at the book of Ephesians and, and, and hear from you? Um, Father, thank you so much for the things that you're doing in the life of our church family. Um, for Just for the, the opportunities for outreach and, and just mission uh, with people. Um, the, the middle school dance that we experienced last night. The, the new gospel communities that are being launched over the last few months. And some of the new direction in terms of developing leaders. Father, I pray that you would just continue to breathe the wind of your Holy Spirit into the sails of our church family. And God, I pray that you would just help us to be attentive to you and what your spirit wants to do in our lives and through us. And Father, I just pray that the people in our community would just be impacted, um, that the dead hearts would come back to life, uh, that the gospel would be preached not just on Sunday mornings in our gospel communities, but throughout each and every individual life here so that people that we come into contact with would just say, man, like what's happening in that person's life? Um, people would just become thirsty. Um, they would come to the well and find that fresh drink of water in, in your presence. So God, I pray that you would do that work. And I pray this morning, Father, you would just remove me uh, from these moments. Uh, somehow, somehow help me to preach <laughs> in a way that um, I'm not actually preaching, but it's you preaching. So Father, I pray that you would do that work. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. So, right, so we're going to dive into uh, week four uh, as we're looking in Ephesians. Been in Ephesians 3, 1 through 13 for the last uh, last four weeks or so. There will be a slide on your screen with some of the kind of the big idea. I'm going to kind of uh, spend some time here on the front edge. Uh, warn you ahead of time, introduction's a little bit long. Um, talking about confidence. It's been kind of the big topic. Confidence. It's an elusive topic to talk about, for sure, right? Um, it's hard to describe uh, confidence to somebody uh, without putting some sort of skin or, or clothing on the subject. Usually when we think confidence, we go, well, that one person I know is confident. Or remember this story of this person being confident. We, we want to have the picture of somebody uh, that is confident when we're talking about them. And I think if we're not careful, um, we can easily dress up this subject of confidence with super unhelpful illustrations that uh, communicate either like a sense of just pulling on our bootstraps or just kind of getting with the program, right? Self-reliance, right? You're just going to be more self-confident. And um, I, I, there's a problem with that. I want to head that off at the past before we get into our passage today because the Bible doesn't encourage anywhere this concept of self-confidence. Just pull up your bootstraps and reach deep down inside and just find the confidence, right? It's, it's not there. The Bible does command us uh, to give every ounce, every ounce of our effort to living in a godly manner, uh, but God never calls us to self-confidence, self-help, self-reliance. Instead, what God calls us to 
all throughout the story of Scripture is to rely on Christ as our sure and certain, steady, reliable foundation, right? That's where our confidence should lie. And by, by, by placing our confidence in Christ, then, then we can give every ounce of our energy to then living in a way that does honor God and is holy. Our, you know, our effort, okay, our effort um, has got to be rooted in who we are. That's one of the one part of the big idea this morning. All the effort that you give to living like a Christian must be rooted in who you are. Uh, your doing must flow out of your being. God did not create human doings, He created human beings, right? Catchy phrase. So what you do, what you do is, is, a, is a reflection, like a mirror image. Think about looking in the mirrors. Everybody look over the mirrors really fast so you cement this. Okay? It, it, all, all of what you do is, is a reflection, like a mirror image, of who you believe you are. And who you believe you are, to get underneath that, is a reflection of who you trust God to be. That's the natural flow. What you do is a reflection of who you believe you are. Who you believe you are is a reflection of who you believe God is. Listen, if you view God as this angry dad in heaven, right? He's got the spanking spoon or the whip or whatever it is. You view God as an angry God, then here's what you believe. That's your view of him. Here's what you believe. You'll you'll believe that you are an unwanted afterthought. God is mildly disgusted with you and angry at you all the time, right? So being in his presence is not where you're going to want to be. The effect of all that is that that you're going to live out some sort of a a begrudging uh, or, or downcast, kind of a legalistic kind of obedience. I just have to do this because God's so angry with me. He's withholding things from me. He's making me do things I don't want to do. Right? That, that's what's going to happen. It's what's going to come out of you. And if your view of God is that he is uh, disengaged, passive, distracted, um, then what you're going to believe, if that's what you believe about God, what you're going to believe about you is that you can get away with certain kinds of sin uh, just as long as you don't commit the big ones, right? Like murder or cheating on your wife. As long as you don't do the big ones, you can get away with the small ones. God's not really paying attention anyways, right? He's too busy for you. So you can entertain yourself over in these categories. God's probably not going to make a big deal out of that. The effect of that is that you you live out this uh, kind of this half-hearted kind of obedience. Yeah, you obey God when it's like timing is right for me. Excusing, glossing over your sin. You see these two categories I built. There's just there's probably multiple other ways. I just want to get your brain thinking that if you view God this way, it produces a certain view of yourself that then produces a certain behavior pattern in your life. Uh, the root of all that obviously is is at, at, at its bottom, really, right, is our view of God. Like, the gospel itself and the scriptures are meant to transform and change the way we see who God is. Both of those ditches I just talked about 
um, they, they cheapen the power of the gospel. Okay? They cheapen the power of the gospel. You got the one ditch of legalism. Got to get my check marks because God's going to get ticked at me if I mess up again, right? God's such an angry God. Why does he always withhold these things that I've wanted? And then I got to get my check marks in a row so I can prove how acceptable I am to God. So that's legalism, right? And then licentiousness. I can get away with some things. God's not really paying attention. Those two ditches, legalism, licentiousness, both of those cheapen the gospel. And they disgrace the cross of Christ. The reason why is because they make you the center of the gospel. That's the reason why. We become the controlling aspect by which all other things revolve. Either in our check mark, check marking of things done right to gain God's approval, or in our downplaying of our sin to demand God's approval. God, you should approve of me. Like, what I did wasn't that bad. Everybody's a sinner, God. So you see how your, your view of God affects your view of yourself, which then um, in turn affects the way that you live? So the way that you live is rooted in, it's a reflection of who you believe you are. Who you believe you are is rooted in who you believe God is. For instance, for instance, uh, Paul in Ephesians 4.1, we're not going to be there for a few weeks yet, but just bouncing ahead for, 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 for a moment. Paul encourages the Ephesians in, in Ephesians 4.1 to walk in a manner that is uh, that it, walk in a manner or walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Right? Ephesians 4.1. Walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, God is worthy. That's a word to believe about him, right? God is worthy. Uh, th- therefore, you are worthy. See the view of God and the view of yourself. Therefore, you are worthy. Uh, so then, walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. Your view of God affects your view of yourself, which affects your lifestyle. One more example from Scripture, just to root this in Scripture as much as I can so that you know. You look at Ephesians, um, I'm sorry, not Ephesians, Philippians. You look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Paul says, as you have always obeyed. This is interesting. Paul says that, Paul says that to people in a church that he helped to plant, right? That's kind of crazy. As you have always obeyed. That's a scary thing for for Paul to say. Paul says that. As you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So he's saying, when I'm not here, like you did good when I was there with you, when I'm not around, when I'm not around, you should still continue to be obedient to the gospel. And then he says this famous phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, the view of God, God is at work continually. That's the view of God that we get from this passage. God is at work continually saving you. Therefore, view of you, you are a new person, right? That's the view. So you can get to work at living like a newly saved creation in Christ Jesus. You can now work it out with fear and trembling. Your view of God affects your view of yourself, which affects your lifestyle. So, All of that, just to simply say, don't get the idea, as we've worked through these last four weeks um, on confidence from Ephesians 3, that then in some weird way that I'm like calling you uh, to just some kind of man-centered, self-help, 
effort at being a confident person. That's not what I want you to hear. This series is aimed at helping you see God for who he is, see yourself for who God says you are, and then begin to live like the child of God that he calls you to be with all of the confidence of the cross and the empty tomb of Christ flowing out of you. That's the aim of this series. So, question. Ask this every week for the last few weeks. Where does your confidence come from? Where is it rooted in? What kind of biblical coat hooks, if you will, can you hang the clothing of your confidence on when your parent is dying, when your friend's marriage falls apart, when singleness becomes too hard to bear, when your sibling loses their job, when a child dies, when a friend suffers abuse, when you suffer abuse, when your finances are in ruins or your friend stabs you in the back, when your, when your child rebels, when you give into that sinful pleasure or pattern again, when your physical health fails, like when you come to the stark reality that life on this earth requires more confidence than you can possibly ever muster up, where does your confidence come from? Where is it going to be rooted in? How will you look into the face of pain and hardship and uncertainty with real, certain, authentic confidence, not something that's just contrived or faked your way through? How will you not give in to the temptation to just toss in the towel and just quit? How are you going to encourage others to remain confident without just preaching the great old American message of pull up your bootstraps and just be a man? Right? Or woman. How will you do that? We've been answering those questions from Ephesians 3, 1 through 13 over the last few weeks. And in the next few moments, I want to work our way through the passage, um, since this is the last week of focusing on this. And as we work our way through it, I want to stop occasionally to just summarize what we've learned over those last three weeks. Um, and what I want us to do is be able to ca- kind of grasp the big picture of the coat hooks that we've laid out. Um, And so one last word of introduction before we head there. Um, As we've taken this text, just a few verses at a time, uh, what we've studied each week, um, we've studied that through this lens of just asking, uh, how did Paul do this? Where did he find the confidence to instruct the the Ephesians not to lose heart and to remain confident, right? As we studied those, what we've noted uh, is that Paul, what he's doing in this passage, is he's using himself as a portrait, using himself as an example um, to paint this picture of confidence on the minds and hearts of his listeners. Um, pa- Paul, Paul was not a man. If you read Paul uh, all throughout his letters, Paul was not a man that was interested in trying to give his listeners or his followers something that he had not received. Paul did not try to impose on you something that he didn't find to be experientially true first. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to bully his listeners uh, into like this contrived application of false confidence. That's not Paul's way. But Paul, I think, in this passage is simply saying this big, broad over, he's saying, look at my life, examine my ministry, see my circumstances on your behalf, Right? 
But do not lose heart because the God who loved me enough to save me from myself loves you enough to save you from yourself. Therefore, be confident in the midst of suffering. Follow me as I follow Christ. Remain confident in him who saved you through great suffering at the cross. My desire, as I think about that, well, my desire is that more Christians would be able to say the same thing to each other. That's my desire. Is that more Christians would be able to live that out and say the same thing to one another. Here's what Paul says. I'm going to give you three coat hooks over the next couple of slides. Coat hook number one from uh, verse one. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, right? That's where we started. What we learned there is that Paul remained confident because he knew that Christ had redeemed him and captivated him. Paul, Paul was no longer tall Saul, right? He was now small Paul. He wasn't the big man on the block with all the power, the prestige, the fame. He was the man who'd been cut down to size by the presence of Christ. Nothing captivated Paul's attention other than Christ. He went from being an enemy of Christ who had put followers of Christ in chains to being a follower of Christ in chains. Paul was redeemed and captivated by Christ, and that gave him great confidence. Verses 2 through 5, next, code hook number 2, which was week 2, Paul says this, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. As we studied that, we learned that Paul had remained confident because he knew that he was a steward, a manager, not a receiver only, but a giver as well, okay? learned that he was a steward of God's grace. He'd been given a massive revelation. For Paul, this gift of God's grace wasn't merely a religious experience to be kept to himself. This this, this experience of God's grace to Paul, this was something that was a gift that he had received. It was a gift that he had received that that was meant to keep on giving back. This gift of God's grace, this revelation of the gospel, It was meant to unite tribes, tons, people of all different colors and backgrounds, insiders and outsiders alike. It didn't didn't make Paul into just a mere consumer, just want to consume more experiences. This is an issue for the American church, big issue in the American church, more so than anywhere else. We are so caught up in our entertainment value. We want to be entertained. Entertain me, right? Um, Consumers, consumers. And we, we need to be consumers of God's grace but we're not called to just be merely consumers. We're called to get our butts out of the stands and get on the playing field of God's mission and give God's grace away. So Paul, Paul was a steward of the great revelation of God's grace that gave him great confidence. That was code hook two. Code hook number three, verses six through seven, which we studied last week, Paul says, uh, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So here we learn that Paul remained confident. How, why? Because he had trusted in the promise of the gospel. And that, that the promises of the gospel that he trusted in made him a gospel-made man, right? A gospel-formed man, a gospel-shaped man. 
Paul trusted that former enemies could become fellow heirs, members of God's family, partakers or shareholders of the benefits of the cross. It wasn't just meant for one select group of people. It was meant for anyone who would come, anyone who would believe. These, these promises for Paul, this is what, what, what shaped him and molded him into the man that he was. Paul was a promise-trusting gospel made man and that gave him great confidence all three of these cohorts we've been looking at gave paul great confidence to then say what he's going to say to us today stay confident right as we hone in on verses 8 through 13 what i want you to see about paul uh this week is that he was an unimportant man with a big responsibility who remained confident and in so doing he called others to the same joy-filled, confident lifestyle of obedience that he also walked. Why? Because he had unhindered access to the Father. That's why. Started in verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, preached to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our Father in him, our faith in him. Verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. When you know that you have unhindered access your Father in heaven, man, you can walk in confidence. And you can call others to the same kind of confidence that you walk in. How do you do this? What needs to change in our thinking for us to become authentically confident people? I have three observations I hope will be helpful. Number one, you don't have to be an important or impressive person to carry out a big responsibility. That's observation number one. You don't have to be an important or impressive person to carry out a big responsibility. Now, we have a tendency to attach big responsibilities to impressive resumes and important titles. Think about that. We tend to be impressed by people with their lists of accomplishments. We say things like, hey, that's like way above my pay grade, right? Or that seems like too much responsibility for me. We'll say things like that. And we think we have to be important or impressive um, to be entrusted with big responsibilities. But, but if you examine, think about this, if you think about the grand arc, the grand narrative of Scripture, okay, from beginning to end, all the characters that you see throughout Scripture, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that God gives massive responsibilities of epic proportion, right, to, to, to people who were extremely unimportant and extremely unsuccessful. Extremely unimpressive people. You could say epic failures, right? You just read the stories. Like, I fit right in so well. Like, a story of scripture just gives me so much hope because everybody throughout scripture, nobody's spit polished and don't doing well, no matter how good they look. The murderers like Moses, right? Backstabbers like Peter. Uneducated people like the disciples, womanizers, adulterers like David, prostitutes like Rahab make it into the 
family lineage of Jesus. Wow. Really? Wow. Hypocritical cowards like Abraham. Remember the dude that lied twice? Not once, but twice. Yeah, she's not really my wife. I really want to save my own hide. So that's just my sister. Go ahead and take her. Oh, God, this gets me furious every time I, I, mean, I, could I, would I ever do that to my wife? Man, just to save my own skin? Oh, man. See, now I'm just being judgmental of Abraham. I, would I do the same thing? I don't know. I bet a lot of us may do the same thing to save our own skin. Right, men? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's more like a sarcastic question meant to make you think. Liars like, rhetorical, thank you. <laughs> Liars like Jacob, right? Liars like Jacob. Thieves like Zacchaeus. Terrorists like Paul, we've been reading about him. And they all make the cut. They all get jobs. They all get massive responsibilities in the kingdom of God. You don't have to be an important person or an impressive person to carry out a big responsibility in the kingdom of God. Paul, look at Paul for a minute. Let's take that angle. We've looked at the larger context of scripture. Let's just zero down to Paul. He was an unimportant man. A massive responsibility. Think first about his responsibilities that he talks about in this text that we're looking at. According to this text, Paul was settled with the responsibility. Think about this job description, point by point. You want this job description? Oh, meh. Responsibility to preach the unsearchable. Another word, unimaginable. Hey, Paul, you're going to preach the unimaginable riches of Christ to other people. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Should I really be doing that? I don't think I'm qualified. Not a very important or impressive person. Oh, not only is he going to preach it to the outsiders, but he's going to preach it to insiders too, both insiders and outsiders alike. Paul was primarily called to the Gentiles, but he also preached to the Jews too. Like, just give me one of those groups. I'd, I'd be happier just, both? Really? Insiders and people that know their Bibles and people that don't know their Bibles? Both groups? What? How do you contextualize in that crowd? I don't know. That's a big job description. He had the responsibility, number two, of bringing to light. Well, at least that's the Holy Spirit's job, is to illuminate, bring things to light. The responsibility of bringing to light the plan of God's saving work for both Jew and Gentile. Uh, he carried the responsibility of being the guy that encouraged the church to live and walk obediently in the wisdom of the gospel. Fun. He had the res- How much does that pay? <laughs> he had the responsibility of helping to tear down, think about this, helping to tear down spiritual strongholds. Right? Eh, on top of all that, <laughs> not done yet. On top of all that, he carried eternal consequences. Oh, the weight of eternity is on this job description. It was signed, sealed, and delivered with the blood of Christ on it. Hmm. And I thought, <laughs> I thought my <laughs> day-to-day call to radical obedience was tough. Anybody else ever think that way? Well, that's, this is really hard to be obedient to the gospel in this way today. I, I don't really like it, or I don't really want to do that. Right, you ever get there? Man, imagine the responsibility that, that Paul has here, right? Imagine that responsibility. That, that job description that Paul has makes resisting my sin look easy and enjoyable. It does. Like, I don't have that job description, although we all share in that job description. I think you could make that argument easily. Think about this phrase. We're going to boil up through the text. This grace was given. (laughs) This grace was given. Hmm. That phrase, this grace was given, precedes Paul's description, his job description. All those massive responsibilities, 
Before Paul even lays those out, he says, this grace was given to me. Paul saw that big job description, that big responsibility, his calling as a minister of the gospel. He saw that as a grace of God. He saw that as a grace from God, not a heavy burden that he had to carry that made him pout and whine or made him tap out and run away, right? It's not, it's, that's not what it made Paul do. When was the last time you saw your responsibility to live and to walk obediently to God as a grace? When was the last time you saw it that way? Such a grace from God that he's given me these boundaries to live within to keep me safe, right? When was the last time we saw it that way? Like that gives me great joy to know that somebody loves me and cares for me enough to say, hey, don't go there. Don't go there. And it's such a joy and a reassurance to me to know that somebody, the God of heaven, who used to be my enemy, but is now my father because of the shed blood of Christ at the cross, because the Spirit has awakened my heart and given me a brand new heart, and not only loves me enough to put up the boundaries, but also loves me enough to reach out and say, hey, by my grace, I'm going to stop you from running over the edge. Like That, that doesn't make me pout. That, that gives me joy. Right? That's Paul here. Joy. When was the last time you accepted the calling of God on your life to honor him with all that you think, say, and do as his unique gift of grace to you? What would it be like? Think about this. What would it be like if Christians all over the place, what would it be like if Christians all across the world begin to walk in joyful obedience to God rather than begrudging obedience to the God that they wish would just leave me alone? What would the world around us do? if they witness joyful obedience in the church rather than begrudging obedience, which actually, at the end of the day, to be honest with you, is called disobedience when it's begrudging. When we pout about doing what God's asked us to do, it's called disobedience, actually. Thankfully, the blood of Christ at the cross covers that sin, too. Top it all off. One last thing Paul says in this section. To top it all off, says he's unimportant, he's unimpressive. He says, I am the very least of all the saints. I have a huge responsibility of eternal proportions, but I'm not impressive. I'm not important. Paul could list all sorts of resume qualifications. Best college, accomplished in his career, smarter than most. But to Paul, those accomplishments meant nothing in relation to his calling. Paul didn't need titles or certificates or check marks or anything to prove that he had done right. He didn't need any of that because he had the blood of Christ the cross of Christ. He didn't need accolades to accept the big task that was set before him with steadfast confidence because his confidence was in the cross of Christ. All Paul needed was a deep understanding of who he used to be, who he was becoming in light of, who had saved him, and who had called him to radical obedience. You don't have to be an important or impressive person to carry out a big responsibility. All you have to do is see God for who he is See yourself for who he says you are and then begin to live like the child of God he created you to be. Number two. Number two, you have unhindered access to the powerful presence of God. Verse 12. Think about what you could do with uh, unlimited resources. There's a lot of things I'd like to do with unlimited resources. <laughs> Think about a lot of things I'd like to do. What would you like to do with unlimited resources? Well, what, well, think about what could happen if you 
Uh, think about what, what would happen if you even just began to live like you had unrestricted, unhindered, and unlimited access to unlimited resources. Now, I'm not saying go out and be foolish and blow all the money in your bank thinking that, ah, God's just going to put more money in there. No, that's, that's, don't go there. Right? That'd be foolish, okay? Now, if you're tracking, if you're tracking, um, you probably know what I'm about to say. Uh, I know that I'm going to say that since you have unhindered, unlimited access to the unlimited, powerful presence of God, that you also have unlimited, unhindered access to all the resources in the world, right? You know, if you didn't know that, you know that now, right? Right. Let me press the button for a minute, though. I think we know conceptually, right, in our minds that we have unhindered access to limitless resources and the powerful presence of God. But what, what happens to that knowledge? What happens to all that you know about God's unlimited resources when your kid rebels? When, when singleness is hard? When you lose the job, a relative dies, right? You feel lonely. And you just make your list. When, when those things, when you're, when, you're, when you're looking at your computer screen at 11 o'clock at night, when you fall back into that old sin pattern again, when you, when you just kind of lose it on your spouse, you just get angry, say things you shouldn't have said. Well, what, happens, what happens then to all that knowledge of God's unlimited resources towards you? What happens in those moments? Won't you become a little bit more like the cowardly lion rather than the lion of the tribe of Judah who's alive in you? I don't want to be like the lion of the tribe of Judah. Not the cowardly lion, but the problem is I, I just behave and live so much like the cowardly lion from the Wizard of Oz far too often. Why is this? Why does that happen? Why do we so easily lose sight of this unlimited power that we have, unrestricted access to? I, I think the answer is that we simply don't have confidence in Christ. Just call it as it is, say it as it is. You simply don't have confidence in Christ. It's why when your kid rebels, you can't get the courage to go confront them the way God calls us to. It's why, it's why when you're looking at that computer screen, you fall because you don't simply have confidence in Christ. That's why, it's why I stumble in these ways. we don't have confidence in Christ, then you can't have confidence in who he says you are, then, then what happens is you're left to then just build up or prop up, create your own false version of yourself that's now created in the image of the false God you believe in. The word confidence, it's synonymous or just like these other words, trust, belief, Faith, conviction, reliance, assurance, certainty, intimacy. These are all synonymous words with confidence. Do a word study on confidence. Let that fill some of your time. Belief, trust, intimacy, closeness. Ah, right? We don't just lack confidence in ourselves. man. We, we lack the confidence to trust or to believe or to place our faith in, have the conviction in, rely upon, be certain about, rest assured in, be intimate with God. Why? Because... We struggle to believe who God is. And we struggle to believe who he says we are. That's the struggle. Each and every one of us. This is why Paul says that in Christ, 
We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Christ. Paul, Paul knew that he had unhindered access to the Father, and that gave him great confidence to encourage the Ephesians to have great confidence too. You and I have unhindered access to the powerful presence of God. When your kid rebels, when you're struggling with singleness, when your computer screen is open in front of you, when you want to lose it on one of your kids or your spouse, when you want to tap out and run off, can I just remind you something that should really encourage you? You have access to unlimited power and resources in the presence of God. Run to him. Run to him. Get your nose in the scriptures. Get down on your knees and beg him to restore to you the joy of your salvation and to strengthen you and empower you and enable you by the spirit that he's poured into you to walk in joyful obedience. You have access. What would happen if Christians latched on to this truth? You have complete unhindered access to the powerful, unrestricted, unlimited presence of God in the cross of Christ. All you have to do is see God for who he is. See yourself for who God says you are. Begin to live like the child of God he calls you to be. Finally, number three, you can walk confidently. You can walk confidently and call others to walk confidently too. You can walk confidently and call others to walk confidently too. Isn't it interesting how obedience is a confidence issue and confidence is an obedience issue? Ever think of it that way? Just thought. Confidence is an obedience issue and obedience is a confidence issue. It's all so intertwined like a big mashed up ball of two different yummy flavored ice creams. There. That came together well. <laughs> the, the, the Holy Spirit ice cream illustration. <laughs> For instance, when we're lacking in our confidence in Christ, what happens is we begin to live disobediently to God. Don't trust God. Don't trust that he's enough, so I'm going to be disobedient to him, right? Uh, and, and, and if we begin to live disobediently to God, um, then we also begin to lack in our confidence in Christ's sufficiency, right? Um, God's not enough, therefore I'm going to walk in disobedience. Now that I'm walking in disobedience, God's not enough to help me walk in obedience. So it just becomes this ugly cycle of mashed up grossness. Not goodness like ice cream, but grossness. It's like rotten food. We, we project, here's what we do. We, 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 take, we see our weakness. You look in the mirror, you see it, you know, you know what your weaknesses are, right? We take that, we project that onto God. We say, well, I'm weak, so therefore God must be weak too. We get it backwards. That's part of the fall. It's part of the world that we live in, right? Part of what came out of Adam and Eve in the garden. Everything got turned topsy-turvy, upside down where it shouldn't be, and we just begin to project our weaknesses onto God. I'm too weak, therefore he's too weak. Who's gonna be able to help me now? Me, I'm just gonna do it myself. He's not big enough to overcome the problems that are in front of me. At the center of this problem with obedience and confidence, this tiny little thing, this tiny little thing called the heart. Everybody make the heart sign. Tiny little, somebody make the heart sign, please. I know you all feel like Justin Bieber now. We don't, we don't like Justin Bieber, so. It's a tiny little thing called the heart. That's the issue. We spent this whole time in this sermon moving from all this head stuff, trying to boil it down to the heart issue, right? I want to get you thinking about what the issues are. I want to show you now where the heart issue is, right? And we lose heart. We lose heart when the heart grows cold and hard. We lose heart when the heart grows cold and hard. Okay? And the heart grows cold and hard because of one 
little three little word starts with the letter S. Anybody got it? Yes. You get an A and you get to go to heaven. <laughs> I don't think that's how it works either. <laughs> Sin makes the heart grow cold and hard. Now let me ask this other question just to continue taking us down. Where do you think the most fertile circumstances for sin to grow in are? The most fertile circumstances, listen to my words close, suffering. The most fertile circumstances for sin to grow in is suffering. Cause a man to suffer, cause a man to suffer, squeeze a grape, what comes out? Find a man who's not trusting or believing in Christ who's not intimately connected or trusting. Man or woman, okay, let's just backtrack. Man or woman, doesn't matter. Child, not trusting intimately in Christ, then, then what comes out of you when you get squeezed by suffering is sin. And then what happens in the midst of that is your heart grows cold and hard, therefore you lose heart, which is what Paul's been saying, don't do. Right? Don't lose heart. Satan knows this. He's not omniscient like God. He doesn't know everything, but he knows this. Why he squeezed Job. You ever read Job? That's why he squeezed Job. God, let me get to your man. That's my Satan impersonation. Let me get to your man. <laughs> I will squeeze him like he's my precious there. <laughs> And he, <laughs> he will curse you, Job. I mean, I mean, he laid waste to Job's life in ways that most of us in this room have never experienced, pain and suffering on that level. And Job, Job man passed the test. Righteous man was he, right? Righteous man he was. He also squeezed Jesus. We see that picture. Good illustration, don't you think? He squeezed Jesus. During the temptation in the wilderness, not to mention his suffering at the cross, right? Suffering can cause us to lose heart, can cause your heart to grow cold and dim and hard with sin. And this is the reason why Paul confidently called the Ephesians to remain confident when he said, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. This is the key. And to see someone that you love suffering for you, that can bring a certain level of pain that most of us are not accustomed to. That, that kind of pain can shake a man to his core, right? We get this conceptually with Jesus at the cross, but I just, I spent time thinking about this. I often think about the things that I've suffered in my life. You can think with me too for a minute about the things you've suffered in your life. I grew up in a single family home, near-death experience, horrifying sin in my life. Those effects all caused some suffering. My mom's death. Four years ago, that, that was some suffering that I faced, loss of friendship, backstab, those kinds of things. All of those things, though, all of those things pale in comparison with the thought of my wife or my children suffering for me, okay? If some, if some enemy of Christ came walking through that back door right now, came in here right now, threatened to do unspeakable things to my wife or my children on account of my faith in Christ. 
just a vision, my wife or my children knelt down on the floor looking at me through tears in their eyes and saying, Daddy, don't, don't give in. Don't lose heart, Dad. Right? Don't lose heart because I'm suffering for you. Don't sin right now because you see me suffering for you. I, I, don't, I, I don't know what I would do. I don't know how I'd walk through that. Thinking about that level of pain and suffering, of which I hope to never experience, it's scary. But the think about it, it does give me some confidence. It illustrates what's happening in this passage, I think, well, but it gives me confidence to walk obediently in the midst of my momentary suffering. Now, the suffering of obedience is hard, yes, but think about what people in the faith have suffered for Christ. Does it come anywhere close to the momentary suffering affliction that we face now? Hebrews, speaking of the father disciplining the son, says you have not yet suffered to the point of dropping all your blood on the ground. Right? It's momentary. Momentary suffering enables me to walk obediently in the midst of my momentary suffering while calling others to walk in confident obedience to. It's the kind of head held high, joy filled, Obedience amidst suffering, that kind of confidence, that's the kind of confidence I see in Christ at the cross because the scriptures tell us that Jesus, for the glory set before him, went to the cross for me when I was his enemy. This is the kind of joyful, obedient confidence that comes out of you when you see God for who he is, see yourself for who God says you are, and begin to live like the child of God he calls you to be. Final portion of this text, just a, a final note, skip past a whole bunch of stuff. One of the final things that Paul says is, my suffering is your glory. Um, th- that, I think, points to the, the glory of the gospel of restoration. Um, in other words, what I think Paul is saying there is he's saying, uh, it's a glorious thing that I'm suffering for you. It's really a glorious thing that I'm suffering for you because my suffering is bringing about your restoration. So God takes broken people like broken bricks in fort walls, restores them little bit by little bit through the preaching of the cross. This is the picture of what God is doing in our midst, I think. I think that God over the years, as we've planted, has been chipping away at the fort walls, not just of your hearts as I preach, but as, as of my heart as I prepare to preach and then preach too. God's chipping away at our hearts, chipping away the hardness, softening us, through the preaching of his word. He's, what he's doing is he's, he's creating in us a new structure, a new building, which if you think back prior to this section of text, that's what Paul says. Ephesians 2.20, he says, Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you're a believer, then you have every reason to be confident because you are not alone. You're not left in the backyard like a broken down car. God has pulled you into his repair shop. It's called the church. Okay? He's restoring you into a brand new person. You're, you're being built into the house of the Holy Spirit. He said that. Paul said all of that right before launching into his long diatribe here for the last four weeks. Um, not to lose heart. What I believe God has been doing is actively working to rescue and restore, tearing down the rotting walls of sinful self-promotion, self-protection, making every one of us into a new man for his own glory. In that truth, I believe that we can remain confident if you're trusted in Christ.
in the midst of our momentary suffering, we can cling to Christ, remain confident, open his word, let it strengthen us, go to him in prayer. That's Paul's prayer in the very next section. After saying all this, Paul hits his knees, praying that God would strengthen the church. The God who spoke all of creation into existence. Listen, final words, okay? God who spoke all of creation into existence. He marked you with his image, sent his son Jesus to the cross for you, left the tomb empty so that you can rest in the power of an empty tomb, knowing that Satan's sin and the grave are beaten. You have confidence in that? He's returning one day like a husband going to get his beautiful bride take you to heaven. This is the God that says that you are loved, you are accepted, you are valuable, you are mine, you belong to Christ and he belongs to you. You are in him and he is in you. What does that understanding of who God is and who God says you are make you want to do? What you do is a reflection of who you believe you are. And who you believe you are is a reflection of who you trust God to be. And that's my prayer for us as we wrap up. My prayer, Father, is that you would help us. Help us to see you for who you are. Help us to see ourselves for who you say we are. Help us to live like the children that you've called us to be and created us to be. We love you, Jesus. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.